It's no secret to anyone in Massachusetts that the state is in a housing crisis. One of the approaches Governor Maura Healey took to start addressing the problem was, of all things, a cabinet reshuffle. She spun the former Office of Housing and Economic Development into two secretariats, and today we're focused on the Office of Housing and Livable Communities. The new executive office and its new secretary do not have a short to-do list. We're simultaneously dealing with a historic housing crunch, a shelter crisis that already existed but has been steadily worsened by the number of migrant families who have come in needing emergency housing. Plus, there's a sustained push for so-called MBTA communities to rezone even as the MBTA part of that equation struggles with service, infrastructure, and staffing. We're trying to close our 200,000-unit housing shortage in any way we possibly can. Oh yeah, there's also an urban doom loop problem. I'm Jennifer Smith, a reporter with Commonwealth, and today I'm joined by Housing Secretary Ed Augustus. He was the former city manager of Worcester before stepping into the role just over four months ago. And today we're going to talk about all things Massachusetts housing, or at least as much of that as we can do in 25 minutes. Secretary Augustus, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So in case most people aren't aware of you before this point, uh, you came to us from Worcester. What was your experience like there in terms of dealing with the housing crisis when you were in charge? And what lessons have you found to be applicable to 2023 Massachusetts more broadly? Well, I became city manager in uh, January 2014, and Worcester was still really lagging in terms of recovering from the housing um, crisis of 2008 uh, when we saw our markets melt down, the housing uh, industry really come to a grinding halt, lending pretty much stopping. And it took a, a significant amount of time for the Worcester area to recover from that. And so you know, part of the strategy uh, in Worcester was to revive the downtown, uh, which had a lot of older office buildings and uh, retail buildings that just were not up to code, that didn't have occupancy. And, you know, when the end of the workday came, you'd have a downtown that was pretty much clearing out uh, because those workers who remained in the downtown went off into the neighborhoods of the suburbs to, to go home, and they weren't replaced by anybody living in the downtown. So one of the strategies was to try to convert uh, some of those office buildings, some of those parcels in the downtown. We had a, a failed mall uh, that was kind of a almost like a Berlin Wall in the center of Worcester that had been torn down, and the plan had been to do uh, kind of mixed-use development that included over 300 units of market-rate housing. Uh, it hadn't been executed at the time that I had become city manager. Other parts of the project had gone forward. And the goal was really to bring density to the downtown, get people living downtown, replacing the people who worked in the downtown at the end of the day with people who were coming home, uh, and try to put feet on the street that would bring back some of the retail, some of the vitality of the downtown area. So, uh, you know, over the course of the next eight and a half years, we were able to do a number of projects in the downtown as well as beyond the downtown that added housing options to to uh, the mix and brought a lot more vitality, a lot more energy to the city and met the housing needs. And, you know, we saw during that period between the 2010 and the 2020 census, the population of Worcester grow about 15,000 people. And that wouldn't have been possible had we not grown the housing stock, even while where Massachusetts lost 100,000 population, Worcester was able to grow because we were expanding housing options within the city. 
Well, there seem to be some parallels there in terms of the sort of hollowing out that we've seen in cities over the pandemic here, where there used to be lots of kind of robust and full office spaces. Uh, You're not seeing the foot traffic that you used to have. And so there's discussions about urban doom loops and what impact that has uh, on cities and then also what we might do with those office spaces. So let's start with the urban doom loop question, which is how have you been thinking about what impact the pandemic and hybrid work has had on living patterns and, and are you worried about it? Well, it's something we're certainly paying attention to. I don't think we know the answer yet. I think we're still in kind of the evolution of how industry of all different types are going to adapt. Uh, I think there was a, a quick sense that, hey, maybe we'd always have this very heavy hybrid work. Uh, I think that's starting to change a little bit because, you know, there is something lost not having that interaction, those kind of informal conversations before and after meetings, you know, cooler conversations that, you know, allow for camaraderie, a sense of getting to know people and Now, that being said, I don't think we'll ever go back to five days a week, nine to five kind of work environment, but I think it's yet to be uh, conclusively determined what the patterns are going to be. But it'll be some some version of a hybrid. So, you know, I think that's forced places like Boston, uh, where Mayor Wu has come out with an office conversion uh, strategy. Uh, It's something we were working on even before the pandemic in Worcester because, quite honestly, the the office market was just not strong enough. Uh, And we had a lot of Class C office space that were in often historic buildings that we never wanted to see lost, but were not going to be upgraded to Class A office building or lab space. And so if you were committed to not losing a historic building in an intact block in your downtown, housing was really virtually the only option. Uh, And so, you know, we tackled several of those buildings, the central building being one that one of the earliest ones, an old state courthouse building, uh, which was uh, done by Trinity, uh, significant affordable units there, but sur- saved a very historic structure uh, in a key location in the downtown area. That now has added to the vitality and vibrancy of the downtown, saved the historic building, provided affordable housing for families and individuals uh, living in that area. So it's kind of a, a perfect Uh, solution, if not uh, an expensive one. Right. And um, I'm so glad you brought up kind of the affordability question as well, because as we're looking about uh, all of these kind of transitioning neighborhood places, transitioning downtown places, the question often comes, where do you prioritize and how do you prioritize the balance of housing mixes and housing uses? So how have you tried to tackle that question so far, the kind of calls for more investment in affordable housing, understanding that we're a housing crisis, but then also understanding that there's a housing shortage connected to that. So walk me through how you're thinking about the mix and if there are any benchmarks that you have in mind at this stage. Yeah, I think we need more housing of every type. Uh, We need more housing of the extremely uh, low income uh, variety. And part of that strategy is really saving the unique portfolio of nearly 44,000 units of public housing Massachusetts has. We're the only state in the the country that has that robust portfolio. And uh, quite honestly, it's lacked capital investments over the decades. And, 
you know, we're not going to be able to make up for that in a year or two, but I think we can move forward more aggressively in trying to deal with some of the deferred maintenance and capital improvements. There's a lot of innovation going on in that space as well, where you're really seeing places like Chelsea and Cambridge here in Boston. I know there's a proposal in Worcester uh, to, in some cases, tear down old dilapidated units, build back new more green units, add market rate units into the mix so you have that kind of income um, diversity that really is the hallmark of a healthy, thriving neighborhood. Uh, And that market rate units help subsidize some of the costs of the extremely, um, you know, affordable units. So I think we're seeing some innovations in that space, and I'd like to see if we can kind of grow those those models. Uh, Again, they're not inexpensive, and so that's the challenge. Uh, we need affordability of a significant range. And, you know, people talk about the, the missing middle, the workforce housing. You go to places like Cape Cod, uh, some very unique challenges there. Half the workforce is coming off the Cape uh, every day to uh, go to work uh, because they can't find affordable uh, housing there for the workforce. So that's a, a unique challenge in that part of the state. Uh, and, you know, you have other places like Boston and the greater Boston area where you just need volume. Uh, you just have folks who, you know, competing for talent uh, around the world uh, with our college grads, college grads from other universities. And, you know, when you're looking at spending 50 plus percent on housing, uh, it doesn't always allow Boston to be their first choice. Uh, and so we need housing of every different kind of income level. Um, as part of the solution to this housing crisis. And thinking about the actual scale of the problem, the issue is ballparked at something like 200,000 units short. So are there any particular benchmarks you're trying to hit at this point? I think it can be kind of tough for people trying to figure out just how big the state is trying to go and how fast when people kind of consistently hear like the problem is really, really bad and we are trying, but they don't really know how to measure it. And it's tricky because there's not, you know, even when we talk about the current tools in our toolbox, the tax credits, the various uh, subsidies that we provide to affordable production, they're layered in there in so many different ways that it's it's hard to say which tool created which number of units. So we've been struggling as we're putting together some new policy suggestions and a bond bill to figure out how you quantify what we might be able to create in additional units or preserve in existing units because the subsidies are so feathered together that it's hard to kind of say, all right, this tax credit is responsible for X number of units when it was combined with affordable housing trust, maybe local uh, funds, inclusionary zoning, et cetera, et cetera. So it's tricky. I've got our new team of data folks trying to figure out a you know, reasonable estimate to that. But, you know, I think the 200,000 number is a safe number to kind of work with, and it's an aspirational number. It's not one that's going to be closed in in a couple of years, but it's certainly one that we ought to be working toward. And you mentioned the bond bill. That's kind of in progress looking at, it seems like the next, within the next month that that's going to be rolling out. How have you been approaching that as not only your first statewide housing bond bill that you guys are pushing out, but also the first one under this new office. I think one of the key things that uh, we've been trying to do is is be good listeners. Uh, and there was a lot of advice that was shared with the administration prior to my arrival about 
what the governor and her team should be doing around housing. Since I've been in this role, lots of different organizations have sent white papers and letters and documents and asked for meetings and come in and offered suggestions and ideas that they think might help with the responding to the challenge. And, you know, we've been meeting with those folks, really diving into those reports, looking for common ground. Is there consensus around some solutions that might make a difference? We've looked at other states. Uh, there's a lot of uh, initiatives going on around the country who are dealing with similar crises, maybe not as profound as ours, but nonetheless, you know, critical. Uh, and seeing what other states are doing and being shameless and saying, hey, there's a good idea in California. We might bring it here to Massachusetts. Now, the problem is you did get me with that because I'm a California native. Ah, so can I ask <laughs> what little bell went off in your head uh, that California is doing that might be illustrative for someone? Yeah, I don't want to get too far ahead of, of my my rollout, but California, I think, it, what I should say first yeah, also sure. is that California is a different structure. And so they have a county system where uh, each county is, has responsibility for housing production goals, which is a little different than the dynamic here between the Commonwealth and cities and towns. And sometimes there's that tension between cities and towns and what the Commonwealth might have in terms of goals for housing production and what cities and towns might want in a particular location. Now, we obviously have a new tool in the toolbox with the MBTA Communities Act, and we're very, you know, aggressively working with local communities in implementing that. Uh, and we think that's going to be an important tool to removing what has traditionally been barriers that have been put in place uh, at the local level. So I think, you know, when we look at lessons in other states, we also have to be sensitive to the different kind of structures and what lessons can we glean and how do we adapt them so they work with our structure here in Massachusetts. But, you know, one is ADUs, uh, accessory dwelling units. Uh, that's something that California and a number of other states have adopted as a way to create additional units. And often those units are uh, filled by a family member uh, who needs care, uh, might be an elderly parent or grandparent or a disabled uh, child, so the family can better take care of them but provide a unit um, that's attached to the house or on the same kind of footprint as the, the uh, primary residence. Uh, and the benefit of that is it doesn't necessarily cost the state uh, any money to do that. Uh, people incented to do that for their own family reasons or personal reasons. And uh, so I think that's something that's worth looking at uh, mm -hmm. is that piece. I, I don't – said in other interviews, I don't think there's any silver bullets. There's not one obvious thing that, geez, if you just did this, this would unlock housing production. But I think it's a series of, you know, smaller – policy changes, additional funding, and, and new partnerships and strategies that hopefully collectively help move the needle and get us closer to that 200,000 number that we've, we've been talking about. And so there are a lot of barriers to housing production, especially rapid housing production, especially kind of at the scale of vacancies that we're seeing right now, which is um, almost nothing. Yeah. Uh, and so one thing that kind of immediately comes to mind when you're talking about ADUs is that sort of idea is often floated in municipalities. Um, but I think I struggle a little bit to figure out we have gotten into 
this housing situation through a combination of factors of lack of investment, of kind of resistance from local communities about doing things like building density. And it does seem like it sort of calls for perhaps a radical reinvention of the way that we've been approaching housing. Is is that how you're feeling about it? Are there things that are working that we just need to amp up? Or is there kind of a big pivot to the way that we need to be doing things? I think Massachusetts, if you look at what we have in our toolbox, the various programs and, and you know, ways to subsidize the creation of affordable housing, we've got the most robust toolbox of any state in the country, and it's funded at a fairly substantial amount. We're going to try to look to take that to the next level probably with the, the upcoming bond bill. Um, so it's not – I don't think that Massachusetts doesn't have a lot of the tools that we need. It's just constantly working those. Now, one challenge that we have even with the tools and the funding levels is the interest rate environment that we're in right now, the inflationary pressures that have been on construction. Um, Those two things combined have made it more expensive to create the same number of units. And so even though you're putting more money in, you're not necessarily creating more units because it's costing more uh, to create the same number of units. And you know, who knows what the, uh, you know, interest rate environment might be like in 2024 or whenever a bond bill is passed. The hope is that at some point in the near future, we'll start seeing some kind of decline in interest rates and hopefully some stabilization and in construction inflation. And hopefully that helps us kind of start to get traction again. So I wouldn't say that there's Like, we need to just scrap the whole system and start from scratch. I don't think that's the case, but I do think that there are some new levers that we can move, uh, some new ways that we can partner with local governments. I think the MBTA law, we have not seen the fruit of that yet. We're in early stages of implementation, but I think that potentially could have a significant uh, impact on kind of loosening up the ability in these, you know, transit communities to allow by right multifamily housing, uh, which is the density that we're looking for in the locations that we're looking for it. Uh, and I think the need, the demand is going to be there. The, the Hopefully the subsidies that we have and the tax credits will be recharged and a more friendly zoning environment in a lot of these communities. Hopefully the alignment of those things help us really kind of move the needle as well as some, like I say, some new policy strategies that we'll we'll try to roll out. Right, because you do have to account, of course, for the human element in all of all of the housing. And uh, I think plenty of our listeners are familiar at this point with the travails of our transit system. And it's been pretty striking recently for me, kind of following local development, even some pretty large local developments that are saying very specifically, we're having trouble convincing people that having this much housing in this place is going to be sustainable if people can't, you know, take trains to and from where they live and where they work. And of course, this ties into the broader MBTA communities question, which is, I don't think there's anything in the MBTA bill that says if you have good, reliable transit, that's what you have to build around just that if you're proximate to it. So how is the Office of Housing and Livable Communities thinking about its necessary interaction with transit infrastructure here? I think that's, you know, the two conversations or the two huge priorities of the governor, transportation, improving the MBTA, its service, its reliability, um, its safety, and housing production. Those two are, as you mentioned, inextricably linked, and they 
they go together. And, you know, in the new title of this department is livable communities. And that's really, in my mind, where the intersection lives. You know, we want people to be able to walk to transit to get to work. That advances all of our climate goals. It creates healthier communities. It creates the vitality I talked about earlier. We want those feet on the street. That creates safety in a neighborhood. That creates conditions for retail and for business, you know, startups and job creation. So there's so many virtuous things come from strategically placing housing and transportation in kind of synergy with each other. Uh, there are a lot of other livable community aspects that come from that. And so, you know, we're committed with this new law. And I know the team at the MBTA and MassDOT are working hard to try to figure out all of the different challenges that they have to make sure that the T is able to, you know, provide that reliable, safe service that everybody needs, everybody wants, and I know it's a priority for the governor. So hopefully as they're working in their lane, we'll be working in our lane with local communities to build that density. And, you know, as they see improvements in the T system, we'll see more density around those T stations. And, and that will, again, feed off each other. I guess part of my question is sort of what is the impact on trust, essentially? Like, does it make, and it's possible it doesn't, but, you know, does it make the uh, Office of Housing and Livable Communities job a little bit more difficult when you're talking to communities saying, like, maybe we would be willing to put in additional density if we had more reliable transit? I guess it's more of an existential question here, which is thinking about as a human who has to get to and from places. How does that end up impacting those conversations? I don't think we've heard, at least I haven't heard directly uh, concerns about, you know, if we do this, would the transportation be as robust and as reliable as we would like? I think everybody knows the challenges that the T has faced and knows the effort that the new general manager and team are putting into trying to deal with those. So it's not like it's a an issue that people are not aware of and not focused on and not really working hard to solve for. So I think there's hopefully the understanding that that's going to be a multi-year effort to, to deal with, but there's a lot of good, talented folks and a lot of focus from this administration on that piece. And quite honestly, it takes years to build housing. We're going to be trying to create the kind of regulatory environment to, to build it in these locations, but then for projects to actually come forward, deals to be cut, uh, plans to be developed, hopefully those things are kind of complementing each other, improvements in reliability of transit and, you know, projects actually coming to fruition. And this is my least favorite transition, but I guess speaking of other crises right now is <laughs> the shelter situation. We're recording this for our listeners. It's in the past. This is a Thursday. Uh, you're going to be hearing this on Sunday. You, uh, Secretary, are going to be talking to folks today about the impact that the shelter crisis has been having on our housing stock. Uh, what can you tell us about sort of the metrics that you've been seeing um, and what our capacity looks like right now? but specifically how the shelter crisis is interacting with the current housing crisis? Well, they're inextricably linked. Uh, We have about a 2.7% vacancy rate here in Massachusetts. And so when you have folks who are housing insecure and ultimately find themselves in a um, homelessness situation, we as a state have made the decision, which is, of course, the right decision, that we don't want pregnant women, families with young children uh, to be homeless. So we've created this emergency shelter system, which 
has been taxed to unprecedented levels uh, in recent months. Uh, I think as we're recording this now, we're over 6,200 families uh, in that system, three to four people per family. So we're talking about tens of thousands of people who are in our emergency shelter system, which has had to be expanded to include hotel, motel sites across you know, more than 80 communities in the state. Uh, and we're struggling, quite honestly, to provide the supportive services we know that they need, that we want them to have, but that the provider community just doesn't have the capability to be in those number of sites. And so that's led to the governor's declaration of a uh, state of emergency and the calling up of the National Guard in order to provide some additional supports and resources there. And you know, unfortunately, right now, it doesn't look like the demand is abating. Uh, and so the goal of emergency shelter is for it to be, you know, infrequent, rare, and brief. Um, and unfortunately, it's none of those right now. Uh, it is people are staying longer because it is more difficult to move them out of shelter into, you know, appropriate safe housing because of the tight kind of vacancy rates that we're seeing around the state. A lot of these families also have various challenges, whether it's the inability to work. And so even if you could find a unit, it's hard to support yourself in a unit if you don't have an income. Uh, and so all of those kind of challenges combine, as well as just the volume that we're seeing day after day, uh, is really taxing the, the system uh, and spending a lot, taking a lot of the time of our team, as well as other aspects of state government just to meet this humanitarian crisis and make sure people have the basic kind of human needs met, like a roof over their head and basic health care for these women and and children. So uh, it is something that we're going to be dealing with, I think, for the foreseeable future. Well, that, unfortunately, is all the time we have for this week. Thank you again to Secretary Ed Augustus for joining me on the podcast and to our listeners. We'll be back with you next week.